I've asked Rhonda to just do a quick favor for me. I, was, I just spent the last hour and a half with uh, Lama Chanchu, receiving his very kind advice on a number of points. Um, so I didn't have time to send myself the notes to my cell phone for this afternoon, and they're, they're rather juicy. And so I've asked Rhonda to go get my computer. So just for a couple of minutes, we know this can be a very short session. Let's just settle the mind in a natural state. We'll have, a, we'll have a longer session later, but I don't want her to miss anything since, since she's doing a favor for me. So just utterly relax, body, speech, and mind, settled. And make a point right now, make a point right now, of really seeing if you can taste the first four, this is like one minute, taste the first four of the tor- four types of mindfulness, single-pointed mindfulness, while you're simultaneously aware of the stillness of your awareness and movements of the mind. 30 seconds. Short session. Um, we're moving to a chapter that may be over our heads for, fun, for some of us. And that is um, the next chapter is assuming you've already broken through to Rikpa. <laughs> so if you haven't, you're really slow and I'm very upset with you. <laughs> um, it's a very elegant text. It's so hard-hitting in a very nice way, is hard-hitting only to delusion and dualistic grasping. Clearly no hard-hitting any sentient being. But when he's finished the shamatha, he's kind of like, you finished that, right? You know, when we finish the shamatha chapter, you're done, right? You're, you're keeping up. Because after all, you're going to, you know, you've just graduated from first grade, you're going to second grade. This means you've covered the first grade curriculum, right? You've gone through the nine stages, you're finished. That would be optimal, really, it's quite seriously, that's optimal. So in, in the best of all possible worlds, you would have a place here in Australia or Tuscany or Mongolia or what have you, where we would just settle down and we'd do this until we'd finish the first. And this is called a nyongti, an experiential guidance, where in the best of all possible worlds, your acharya, your teacher, lama, has all the experience already, and so it's teaching from experience, and then just nyongti gives you like, like, a, like a parent f- spoon-feeding a baby. You know, you, and, and I won't give you the second spoon until you've swallowed the first one. I'll, I'll mop you up a little bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I remember doing that to my mom. <laughs> so when you finished, you know, when you finished the uh, stage of generation, you really have some sense, let alone full realization, but you really know how to do it. You have a real sense of dissolving ordinary appearances and arising in that way, doing the, doing the uh, that beautiful short sadhana that we're fo- so familiar with right now. And then shamatha, okay, you're finished. Then vipassana, okay, you have some real insight into the nature of the emptiness, primarily of your own mind and even of awareness itself. And then we have this pointing out instructions, which I translated as identification. And that, of course, m- once you've softened up, really it's kind of like that, we're not speaking about full realization of emptiness, that you're Arya Bodhisattva, but you've softened things up so your very sense of your own mind, this all-creating sovereign, you have a sense of it not being so hard, so, so powerful, it beats you up so easily. It's more like a cloud or a mirage rather than a hammer of being tortured by your own mind. Oh, I can't stand being with my mind. Oh, my mind's so... No, you've softened it up. Because you're seeing, hey, this mind doesn't even exist. 
prior to an independent of conceptual designation. You can't even find it. This great big boogeyman, you know, this great big demon that's beating you up all the time. You look, hey, where are you? Flake? Look for you, all hiding in the shadows, where are you? And finding not only that you can't find it, but of course finding that it's unfindable. So that's vipassana. Then you have identification, now that you've softened up your experience of the mind, then it's easier, after all, if you've softened up something, then it's easier to cut through it. If it's still hard frozen, with full unchallenged reification of your mind, that's gonna be hard to break through. And that's why we're bringing in the, the kind of the jackhammer, because it really kind of felt like that, didn't it? Like really hard, difficult, this is hard, this is hard, I can't find it, this is frustrating, I don't really enjoy this. Well, try working on a jackhammer, I don't think many people really get a kick out of that. You know, it's hard, it's really hard, but you break things up a bit. And then when you go to that beauty of that just kind of relaxation, that non-meditation, then Paul, it's softened up so much you may, may be actually able to cut through. So that's the whole point of that identification chapter, that you do cut through. And it's so similar. Here, there's something that many of us have experienced, and if you haven't experienced, it's not that far away. And that is becoming lucid in a dream. Okay? If you've not experienced it, hey, don't worry about it. It's not very far away. And a number of you have experienced them multiple times, right? Well, that point, when you're in a non-lucid dream, and usually, in my experience, it's an anomaly. Something comes up, catches your attention, raises the question, might I be dreaming? And the answer is yes. And suddenly you have this shift. And it's nothing intellectual about it. You are simply viewing the dream from a different perspective. You've cut through. I mean, that, the parallel is so strong. You've cut through and you're, view, you're still in the dream, but you're viewing it from the perspective of being awake, which is a wonderful facsimile, of course, that's all it is, to viewing this reality from the perspective of an awake consciousness, which is Rigpa, which is Dharmakaya. Okay? Now, for those of you who have had lucid dreams, you know your first one probably doesn't give you full, total comprehension of the nature of dream reality. So in the very first one, you can fly in the air and you can turn the top part of your body into flame and the top bottom part into, you know, into rain, rain. You probably can't do that. You probably not, maybe not even be able to walk through a wall in your first one. You know, you get stuck halfway through the wall, that kind of thing. But you are lucid, but you know there's more to be done. That is, getting lucid once doesn't give you full realization of the nature of the dreams, right? So what do you want to do? You want to you want to identify it again. You want to become lucid again and lucid again, right? And then once you have become lucid and you know you can become lucid, you've tasted it. It's not just somebody else's experience. You've had it yourself. Then, of course, the big question is, I want to go back. How can I go back frequently and how can I stay? And while I'm staying, how can I fully realize the nature of this dream reality? That would be the practice of dream yoga. The first one is becoming lucid. Nilam, nilam yimbar, munzimba. Recognizing the dream as the dream. That's like the breakthrough. That's like cutting through, right? So similar. But once you've cut through, you, all of us who've had lucid dreams, you know how fragile it is. You cut through, you get really excited, you wake up, <laughs> lucid dream's finished. Or you cut through, it lasts five seconds, and then you dither off, cut through, try to walk through a wall, get stuck, you're still there, sorry. <laughs> you know, but you know that there's a lot more to be done. And so what you want to do when you know, okay, I think I know how to become lucid. 
you have daytime practice, nighttime practice, but you get it so you start having to having lucid dreams a bit more frequently, right? Which is mean like you're, you're cutting through to Rigpa repeatedly because you'll fade out. You'll go by, right back to dualistic grasping. That's true in the four yogas. They say in the beginning, you know, you're there, but then as soon as you're out of meditation, you go right back into seizure. Really, it's just like that. Right back into seizure of reifying everything, dualistic grasping. And then you get back in the cushion, you go back into rehab and come, come out of your datura hallucination of dualistic grasping. You cut through, you, you come to your senses, you gain your sanity again. This is deep sanity of rikpa. But then you lose it. That's the first yoga. You're in and out. In, in, in rehab, out of rehab, in, you know. So, so the next chapter of practice, practice is once you're there, once you've cut through, and so close, not the same, of course, but so close to being lucid in dream, once you've cut through and you're really tasting, not full taste, not vidyadara, but still some real genuine taste, what do you do now? What are the methods to enable you to sustain that? Just like being able to get a longer lease in your lucid dream, so you can stay there for five minutes and ten minutes, and then while doing there, doing while while sustaining the dream and the lucidity, the dream and the awareness that it is a dream, both, then starting start running, you know, running interesting experiments. So the next the next chapter then practice is once you've broken through, how do you sustain it? Enabling you, therefore, to deepen the experience, purify the experience, so it'll have a deeper impact and it will start to flow over and have a stronger and stronger influence on your post-meditative or in-between session experience. Because that's, after all, uh, this is a big difference. It's really important. None of what I'm saying now is just fluff. If you achieve shamatha, and then you just keep on going back to it and back to it, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, and the months and years go by, you're not going anywhere at all. Really nothing's happening. You know, you squeeze that fruit already dry, you keep on squeezing it, you'll enjoy it just as much, which is the problem, but you're not going anywhere. Your, your in-between session, post-meditative experience, it got really good, you're on a high. You remember those post-meditative experiences, they're fabulous. But you keep on going back to shamatha, it doesn't get any better. And you may be satisfied, and that would be the big problem, right? In contrast to that, both for vipassana, go into that realization and then unify that realization, your vipassana with shamatha, dwell there, keep on going back in and dwell there, come out, dwell there again, that purifies. That purifies. That's what the Arya Bodhisattvas are doing. That purifies. They say it's like taking a, a dirty cloth, a very dirty cloth. In old-fashioned times, we all know about it. We probably haven't done it. The washboard, the washboard, they have that all over the world. It's common. Everybody's got wood, except for the Eskimos, maybe. And so you, you take your really soiled cloth next to the river, and there you go. And as you're, as you're going up and down, up and down, the really coarse, easy stains, the external mud, that comes right off, and it suddenly looks a lot better. But then you know what you have to do. Just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it until it's snow white, crystal white, you know, totally white. And that's what, it, that's what in, is involved in moving from the first boomy through the, all ten boomies. Just in and out, in and out, in and out. But it is worthwhile that going in and out purifies. Unlike achieving shamatha, in and out, in and out, in and out, you're just going around in circles. Very pleasant circles, but going nowhere. 
right? Well, as with vipassana, as with realizing emptiness, so with realizing rikpa. In and out, in and out, in and out. So this practice chapter then is how to go, not how to get in, that was the last chapter. All that analysis, all of that, all the teaching, all the pointing out instruction from one brilliant master after another. That was a gorgeous bouquet. And any one of them could be sufficient for somebody. But I suggested choose your favorite, translate it in your native language if you need to, and then give yourself pointing out instructions. It's like having Dingo Kensuda Mochi come home with you. You're a Dujum Rinpoche or, you know, Lerap Lingba coming home. But in your voice, in your language, it's pretty sweet. Right? So do that. We're here for just another week and a half or so. But this is looking ahead. Uh, you know, I really enjoy question and answer session. And you know we basically had none. And I don't feel any regret. Because I think a lot of the questions that were coming up come out of the text, out of the commentary. And so, you know, there's, there's just bound to be pros and cons, but actually I'm very content with how we've gone, and we're pretty much going to continue in that way. Uh, hopefully, important questions will be, will be, you know, will come up and be addressed here. So, so this next chapter then about practice. It's about learning how to sustain, and then the final one, Mahamudra, will get to that. So, we had our little 30-second practice there. Because there's a parallel in the settling the mind in its natural state. That one method, that one method, which we see that Dujum Lingba emphasizes everywhere, that's the one that he really emphasizes. That first mindfulness, with the prelude being, can you experientially distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and the movement of mind? If you can't, keep doing it until you can, right? That's the prelude. Can you, can you see? I'm still, oh, now I'm not. Still, oh, not. And not just movement all the time. People, intelligent people with no meditative training and no natural gift, uh, don't know about that. They don't know that's even possible. Because whenever a thought comes up, they're in motion. And emotion comes up, motion, motion, motion. They know only motion. And they don't know what it's like. They've never been trained. It's really a very impoverished education that never teaches people how children how to be still. Not physically, that's hard enough for kids. But for have five seconds of what we're going to do for five seconds. You all know how to do it. Everybody should know how to do that. That was stillness. And then, when the mind ruminates, of course, that's motion. Well, that's not so hard. You can do that in one day. It may take more than one day. Some people are quite gifted. They get it quickly. But that first of the four mindfulnesses, there are only four, so one out of four is kind of a big deal. And that is that single-pointed mindfulness, which is what, Claudio? Yeah, he said it exactly right. The first mindfulness, single-pointed mindfulness, whew, as he, wa- as he mops the <laughs> sweat off of his brow. <laughs> uh, sure, that's it. But you see what's happening there. Look at it. You've experienced it. I think probably you've all experienced that by now. That in that moment, where you're simultaneously resting in the stillness of your awareness, and you are observing your mind rather than being caught up in it, welcome to a lucid rumination. Welcome to a lucid stream of thought that can very easily be non-lucid, which we call wandering mind or obsessive-compulsive ideation, right? 
That's a non-lucid mini-dream. And when you can, even if it's only five seconds, you can not just be still, that was just still. That was easy. But spend a minute at it, and within a minute, within the course of 60 seconds, find there are occasions when you know your awareness is still, which means the king, the sovereign, is resting on the throne, and a thought comes up, and it goes away, and you are not abducted. Okay, that means you are lucid with respect to your mind during that interval. You are not captivated by it, you are not carried away by it, you're not mistaking the thought for the referent. That's big, because that's what we do all the time in non-lucid dream. A mental image comes up, and we completely fuse it with the actual person, the actual place, and so forth, and we think that's waking reality. Well, we're delusional, right? So see the strong, this I really want you, hope you take home with you, that strong parallel between being lucid with respect to your mind in the waking state, which happens from mindfulness one, carries on with mindfulness two, you go into that temporary lack of mindfulness in three, and then mindfulness four, you're the chief shamatha. So that's cutting through, relatively, 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 cutting through to being lucid with respect to your thoughts in the waking state and not being caught up in them as if they were a tiny lucid dream, non-lucid dream, non-lucid dream. And so that's the parallel. So we can see why that method is so strongly emphasized in the, in the Mahamudra tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, because it's just perfect. It's so much in the vein, in the current, in the flow that's going to serve you so well when you're ready then to have, to have that breakthrough you, where you cut through not just your coarse mind to a facsimile of the substrate consciousness, but you're cutting through the substrate consciousness to Rigpa itself. So that's a big deal. So the next chapter then is clearly intended for people who have some taste. They have cut through. And I have no qualms about teaching it, whether or not any of you here or some portion, some fraction of you have had some genuine taste of Rigpa. To me, I'm happy either way, because I have no doubt about everybody's sincerity here. You have me totally at ease uh, about that. And so that's all that anyone would ask for or expect is you're doing your best. And then how quickly there's a breakthrough, how quickly you develop in shamatha and so forth, you can't control that. What you can control, you know, really exert strong influence on, is what, it, what you're bringing to the practice. So I've got a big challenge for you. Uh, I'd like to invite you on a, um, a one-week strict retreat. One-week strict retreat. It's going to be very challenging, because it's going to be a Mahamudra retreat and you really want to dwell in silence as much as you can. Because as soon as we start talking, the mind does tend to spin out and go here and there, and lots of associations, and when the conversation's over, there tend to be a lot of echo, 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 blah, 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 afterwards. And so, utterly understandably, over the past weekend, there was a lot of talk, a lot of activity, a lot of energy coming up. Me too, me too. Never given an empowerment before. Kind of like, whoa. You know? uh, that's all are totally understandable, and no judgment. But it's over. <laughs> We're finished. And we have one full week. One full week. We're not going home yet. We're still at cruising altitude. 
I'll let you know. You know, 20 minutes before, isn't it? About 20 minutes before. The pilot always comes. I've heard it a hundred times. He's heard it a thousand times or more. You're not really landing yet, but now's the time to put your luggage up and all that kind of business. And then the last 10 minutes, sit down and shut up. (laughs) 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 Well, we're not at the 20-minute point yet. We're still cruising altitude. And we will be through next coming Saturday. We have one full week. And we now know each other. We're friendly with each other. We're relaxed with each other. This is a beautiful Sangha. Be happy with yourselves. This is really a lovely Sangha. We have no grounds for complaint. This is a healthy Sangha. The teachings are really good. The environment's good. We've gotten used to it. Whatever, however we needed to do it, we're pretty well accommodated with the one issue that was our external upheaval. You might have noted a few cars going by once in a while. So, but we, you know, whatever it is, it's, it's done. We've, we've done what we can. And so we're still at cruising altitude. So that's what I'm, I'm suggesting here, that we have one more week of retreat. This marvelous material coming up. It's really deep. And even if you've not, re- rec- uh, not really broken through or cut through to Rikpa yet, store these seeds. The oral transmissions is coming in. That'll be stored. The commentary. Gyatran Rinpoche has a beautiful commentary here. I won't read it, but you can. And then you will know just what he said when he was giving the commentary to this. It's really rich. And I'll simply add some, some notes there that perhaps he did not make. But let's have one good week. By the time it's Sunday, you're on your own anyway. And then I was thinking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think, here's my thought, just so you know what's coming. Monday, I think I would like to invite everybody to talk and, and to have fellowship and conversation at dinner, but not breakfast and lunch. Monday. Tuesday, lunch and dinner. <laughs> breakfast, silent. Wednesday, I'll forget about it. <laughs> Don't even try to control it. It's going to be totally out of hand. So whatever I said, it's not going to matter. <laughs> you know, it just won't matter at all because you're going to do exactly what you want, <laughs> which is fine, which is fine. And that's the way the retreat should end. You know, that we're making a smooth transition out. We're not going to be shocked when we come out where a lot of people are talking and maybe not even practicing Dharma all the time. Uh, so, but that means we have Monday through Saturday cruising altitude. Monday, it'll be 20 minutes, you know, pack your luggage, and by Tuesday, Wednesday, okay, now. But instead of sit down and shut up, stand up and talk. <laughs> okay? So that's that. Okay. So let's go directly to meditation, get a bit, bit of guidance, try to make a segue to this next chapter. Our best approximation. And please, no one be discouraged as we go into this next chapter thing, I'm not there yet. Well, we're sowing seeds. And if you're not there now, well, give yourself some time. And all in good time, you'll be there when the time is ripe. And then you'll remember t- that this time, this period here, when these seeds were sown, planted in the earth, the good soil, the field of your mind. And if you take good care of them, they will germinate. And when they're really sprouting up, then you'll remember, oh, this is where the seeds were sown. On one occasion, you probably had other teaching, uh, teachers as well. Okay, so one 24-minute session. Whoa. Happy, nice yawn. Yawning is good. Hola, so.
So let's relax into this. If you'd like to yawn, now's the time to yawn. Now's the time to unwind. Relaxing the shoulders. Softening all the muscles of the face. If you're in the supine position, you'll relax every muscle in your body. And settle your body in that wonderful balance, that dynamic equilibrium of deep relaxation. A posture of vigilance, even if, even if it's only psychological, that's enough. If you're sitting upright, of course, you're sitting at attention. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state, step by step. For a few minutes, following any method of your choice, emphasize the deepening relaxation, the quieting and calming of the mind, with mindfulness of breathing. Then very softly let your eyes be at least partially open. Every muscle of the face relaxed and soft, especially those around the eyes. Vacantly rest your awareness in the space in front of you. First and foremost, 
sit firmly on your throne. Let your awareness be still, resting in its own place. This is stillness. stillness that is fragile, a stillness that deteriorates quickly, but nevertheless you can taste it and you can sustain it with practice. Here is the point at which the pith instructions state, let your body be still like a mountain, your awareness still like space. Now's the time. Now's the time for Lit Up Lingba's pith instructions. Be relaxed from your core, your body utterly soft, at ease, comfortable, your mind carefree, at ease, loose, secure, fearless, at rest. Now let the light of your awareness flow out. This inner glow of your awareness when you're simply resting. Awareness aware of itself. The glow, the light of your awareness stays within, within the vas of your awareness. But now, let this inner light, this inner glow flow outwards in a type of radiance that illuminates the space of your mind. And from that relaxed stillness, Observe the shooting stars of thoughts, the rainbows of images.
observe the space of the mind in which these appearances arise and see them for what they are, these appearances. So obviously empty, having no substance or tangibility, no objective existence in and of themselves. Empty appearances, configurations of the space of the mind itself. Like clouds emerging from the blue sky without any substance and dissolving back into the blue sky. Formations of space. coming and going, arising and passing, while your, your awareness is still flowing constantly like a stream without overflowing its banks. When you're very relaxed, you're moving closer to, or descending closer to, the perspective of your substrate consciousness. So at ease, so relaxed. Even when impulses arise from your mind, the thinking mind is activated. Desires come up, feelings come up. still remain still and aware of the movements of the subjective mind, the impulses arising, flowing out and evaporating, all seen from a, from a perspective of stillness, observing the mind in motion. starts talking, but you're not talking. You're just listening. You are still. The mind moves. You are inactive. The mind becomes active and then subsides again.
And when you are deeply at rest, with a deep sense of relaxation, resting in stillness, you may observe, you may see how these subjective impulses are flowing forth from your very awareness itself. They too are configurations, crystallizations, flowing forth not so much from the space of the mind, but flowing forth from your stream of subjective awareness. They're nothing but configurations, outflows of the stream of mental awareness. And they don't really seem to come from anywhere or be located anywhere. And they don't really seem to go anywhere. Mere appearances, empty in origin, location, and destination. those interludes, those periods. When your awareness seems quite thoroughly still, when the space of the mind seems empty, and subjectively nothing's coming up, you're just at rest in stillness. Note that, take a close look. What's that like? Do you experience that unmediated sense of cognizance, the clear, immediate knowing of knowing. Check right now. When we rest there, knowing there are two aspects of consciousness, cognizance and luminosity. The luminosity 
is not so evident. The cognizance very much so. But the luminosity seems to be contained within the vase of awareness. But then an appearance arises in the space of the mind. And this is how you can know. This is an expression, an effulgence, a display, an emanation of the luminosity of your own awareness. You know your own consciousness by way of its creations. View all appearances in the space of the mind as nothing other than displays the luminosity of your own awareness, having no existence whatsoever. from displays of your own awareness. Like light refracted through a crystal. Likewise, the subjective impulses that arise, the feelings, the activation of the thinking mind, the desires, the emotions, insofar as you can view them from the perspective of your substrate consciousness, from a non-human perspective, a perspective outside the matrix of your own mind, your own dualistic mind, you can see that these subjective impulses, these emergences of mind, are nothing other than, once again, displays of the luminosity of your own awareness made manifest as desires, thoughts, emotions, and so on all that you're experiencing consists only of awareness in its cognizance and displays of the luminosity of awareness ever so creative from this all-creating sovereign. This entire practice depends on your ability 
to enter into and sustain single-pointed mindfulness. Becoming lucid with respect to your own mind and the waking state, where from the vantage point of stillness, you observe simultaneously the movements in the space of the mind and the emergences and dissolution of subjective impulses. This is the key to freedom with respect to your mind. Viewing the mind from this perspective, the arising of thoughts, of appearances in the space of the mind and of subjective impulses, is not a distraction, not an obstacle, but even more so than something to be tolerated or simply accepted. The movements of the mind arise to assist you in your practice, to deepen the stillness, to enhance the vividness, the clarity. All thoughts, all subjective impulses, arising and enhancing, empowering, supporting the deepening of the stillness and luminosity of your own awareness. Whatever they may be, pleasant or unpleasant, coarse or subtle, virtuous or non-virtuous, all equally arise as your aids. session to a close. Oh, not so. That was very core. That's for a mature practitioner, a person who has some real familiarity already with the settling the mind in its natural state. So that as you continue on in this practice, 
And the practice does what it needs to do, and that is dredge your psyche and bring up the impulses, the memories, the desires, whatever's there. And dredging in the psyche, it does bring up the outer, the inner, and secret upheavals. That's how you practice. Because whether your eyes are open or your eyes are closed, all of these appearances are still arising in the space of your awareness. That's all that you're ever experiencing, are appearances arising in the space of your awareness, and nothing else is getting through. Catalyze, sure, you're not the only person in the universe, but the only thing getting through isn't getting through. It's just catalyzing your own awareness with nothing penetrating the field. Catalyzing, yes. Penetrating, no. So, so if you can bring that quality of awareness that we sought to arouse in that session to whatever's coming up, whatever's stirred up, especially psychologically, but also in the body and also in the environment, exactly where the divisions are start, starts to blur a little bit. Where does the environment end and your body start? In your imagination, that's easy. You get out your cookie cutter of your conceptual mind. My body starts, stops right here. When you're thinking about it, and we're not thinking about it, oh, exactly, exactly where is here? Exactly where are those borders? And between your experience of the body and your experience of the mind, where was that nice clear-cut border? That's the body. This is the mind. Where was that? Did you find it? So outer, inner, and secret, whoa. The borders start to get a bit ephemeral. Now, in that practice, if you're still in the mode of shamatha, see, dissolving, letting settle, because you're not really actively doing anything, but letting your mind settle, softening it up, melting it so that it's settling down towards the substrate consciousness. And if that's where you were in that session we just finished, then that was that's a good session of settling the mind in its natural state. On the other hand, if you've been keeping up and you've already had some taste of rikpa, then that practice we just did was not viewing your mind from the perspective of the substrate consciousness or your best approximation of that. That session was viewing the whole of experience from rikpa. And it's the same practice. Everything I said was then referring, when I said this is an expression of your own awareness, well, it's an expression of rikpa, pristine awareness. Every, all appearances, not just in the space of the mind, all appearances, visual, auditory, and so forth, all have no existence whatsoever other than pure displays of rikpa, pristine awareness. And not only the appearances that are rising up to meet you, but also the stuff that's coming up. I like this. I don't like that. Oh, I'm feeling this. This is emotion coming up. This, this. All these emergences. They too. You recall. Everything happening in the mind is dhanakaya. Even the five poisons. Nasty. Jealousy. Pride. Anger. Really nasty not from the perspective of pristine awareness. No. Facets, facets, refracted light from pristine awareness. From your perspective, nothing impure about them. Right? And so this is the, I just gave the gist of the whole next chapter.
And that is as you're resting in your best approximation of Rigpa. That's what we're to do, here to do. You get there by just practicing as well as you can and viewing it to your best approximation from the perspective of Rigpa. Now it's not simply that you've broken, you've cut through to a stillness that's beyond motion, beyond, beyond, beyond all the conceptual elaborations. That's good, that's good, that's good. That you're breaking through to your ground, pristine awareness. But there's also the other aspect of pristine awareness. There's Rigpa, pristine awareness, and then Rigpe Zell. Zell means creative power, creative expressions, manifestations, displays. It's the light of Rigpa, right, manifesting out. And if you're resting a Rigpa, you see that, right? Such that even little chit-chat thoughts, you've just, you know, you've just finished some tea and had a conversation with someone, and afterwards you return to your Dzogchen practice, and you settle in Rigpa, and maybe, since you're not trying to practice shamatha, you're not trying to calm the mind, now you're not doing that, right? When you're doing nothing, when you're rest, resting in non-meditation, if chit-chat comes up, if chit-chat comes up, but you're not trying to ignore it, you're not, you're not doing anything at all. But now when the chit-chat comes up, the memories, the fantasies, the emotions, and so forth, you're resting in Rigpa, you've cut through to that. The next chapter is now, how do you, how do you stay the course? How do you continue resting there and not get pulled off your throne by thoughts, memories, fantasies, emotions, desires, and so on? How? I can tell you. You view them from your perspective, which is pristine awareness, and you see all of them as nothing other than expressions or effulgences of pristine awareness. So if you're only approximating, or perhaps you've achieved shamatha, and you're viewing them from the perspective of the substrate consciousness, from that perspective, all these appearances, appearances arising in the substrate, all these mental impulses, <coughs> emergences from your mind, semjung, mind emergences from your substrate consciousness, your continuum of mental consciousness. That's it. That's quite something. But if you're resting in Rikpa and viewing the same events, you see, you now see. Stage regeneration, you imagine this is so. Here, there's no imagination. You're actually viewing the activities of your mind from the perspective of Rigpa. So number one, you see, them as, you see them as empty. The subjective as well as the appearances arising to your awareness. You see them all empty. None of them have any power to do anything to you. And because they have no power, because you see they are empty, and because you see they are nothing other than displays, outflows, manifestations of your own pristine awareness. In fact, in this chapter, in this chapter, the practice chapter, you s the arising of these activities of the mind, the thoughts, images, impulses, and so forth, they are rising and they arise and they are enhancing your practice. They're enhancing your practice. Because now you're resting in Rikpa, but you're seeing the other dimension of Rikpa. Rikpa is creative, it's dynamic, it's a fountain. It's a fountain. And you're recognizing the fountain by what flows out of the fountain. Now you're seeing Rikpa in its fullness. If you could just rest in Rikpa, transcend it, just rest in Nirvana, 
rest in emptiness, viewing it from the perspective of Rigpa, as a vidyadhara, just resting in equipoise, resting in just emptiness and Rigpa, non-dual emptiness and Rigpa. That's great for Dharmakaya. And that's great for Dharmadhatu. But what about Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya? What about the outflows for the sake of all sentient beings? Yeah, you're not seeing that. You're, you're like, like a chicken sitting on an egg that's just ready to hatch, but it hasn't. So as, well as, as far as you're concerned, you're just sitting on a, on a rock, a warm rock, and that baby needs to hatch. And then you will see what eggs are about. Or, that's one metaphor, here's a more traditional one. Then you see what a womb is all about. Because garba means womb. Tathataka garba, sugata garba. Womb of all the sugatas, womb of all the tathagatas. Right? That got lost in translation in Tibetan. Because in Tibetan it's teshin sheping nyingbo, which means essence, doesn't mean womb. Womb is ngel. They don't say teshin sheping ngel. But they do in Sanskrit. So it's good to know both. Because they both have their, you know, their benefits. So at that point, if you read a lot of Mahamudra literature, Dzogchen literature, they'll say, see all phenomena arising as aids to your practice. Well, that's hard to do if, you have, if you're not resting in Rikpa, but you do your best. That's the gist of all of Lojong, right? All of mind training. But you're doing it actively. You're bringing in discursive meditations. You're actively transforming. Okay, I'll view this. Oh, this is going to help me develop renunciation. Oh, this is good. Help me develop patience. This is good. Help me develop greater compassion. That's good. But you're at the operating table, you know. Okay, bring in this. Okay, you cut down. Okay, but you, you now, you, you. Okay, good, good. You're the head of a chef. You're the chef, head of a kitchen, right? And you're cooking this pot and cooking that pot. You got seven points, seven pots cooking, right? So there's a lot to do. That's good. As long as you're operating out of your law, which is your mind, then you train it. When you're operating out of rikpa, and the training means you modify it. You shift your attitude. You fix things. Don't keep on looking at that person like that. That's stupid. You're just making yourself unhappy. Stop doing that. Look at the person from this perspective. Oh, doesn't that feel better? So you fix it. When you're viewing your mind from within the context of mind, fix it for heaven's sakes. When you're viewing your mind from the perspective of substrate consciousness, watch the mind unravel. And then, those mental afflictions dissolve of their own accord. Problem is, they keep on coming back. If you want to cut to the root, of course, then you go to Vipassana. Once you've cut the root of the reification of mind, then you go to Rikpa. From Rikpa, there's nothing to cut. There's nothing to fix. Because even the five poisons are not, here's the catch, listen up closely, even the five poisons, not only are they not obstructing your practice, not contaminating your practice, they're arising as aids to your practice, all because of your perspective. So when Gyatranavachu told me way back when, oh gosh, 1993 or so, and I was complaining about these little kids ruining my meditation, these little five-year-old girls screaming on their plastic tricycles. <laughs> Happily screaming. But, you know, at six o'clock in the morning when I want to be meditating, and <laughs> I can't squeal like a little five-year-old girl, but they do it well. You know, and it was just piercing. Piercing. You know, and here's this former monk at Stanford in the family housing and thinking, oh man, I wish those kids would shut up. 
I'm practicing Dzogchen here. Ha ha. That's what Rinpoche would say. Ha ha. <laughs> he loved to say that. Ha ha. Bullshit. <laughs> that's what he would say. Ha ha. Bullshit Dzogchen. Ha ha. So when I came to him, Rinpoche, these little kids are making so much noise. You know what he said. View it. That was so easy to say. Want me to say it again? <laughs> view it. What he was saying is, hey, view it from Rigpa. There's no problem. And don't complain to me again. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the point when this really becomes real. When all that talk about, see your mind is Dharmakaya, blah, 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 which seems like, yeah, get, give me a break. Well, you've already made your break. You've cut through. You've broken through substrate consciousness to Rikpa. And that's real. And there's no imagination involved. That's the beauty of this path. The Mahamudra path, the Dzogchen path. There's no, uh, there's no imagination. You just see things as they are. So let's do a bit of the text. Because there's a lot to go and we have a relatively few days. But I think you're going to understand this quickly. The experience comes, of course, more slowly. But you start with understanding. Remember this. Memorize it, if you will. Start with understanding. I hope you leave here with understanding, because it's not that complicated. Then slowly, slowly, maybe over the next, this one week of real retreat, cruising altitude, some experience coming. And then as the week is over, we move, we go back to our various places, continue practicing, really practicing. Then realization comes, knowing comes. And then when knowing is stabilized, reinforced, empowered with the union of shamatha and that realization, then you acquire confidence. That sequence is really good to memorize, because it's really what happens. Without understanding, authentic experience is likely, un- very unlikely. Without experience, realization, pretty much forget about it. Without, without realization, acquiring confidence in what you haven't realized, ain't going to happen. Understanding, experience, realization, acquiring confidence. That's the path. Chapter 6, Practice. On page 125, homage to Avalokiteshvara. These are the profound practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara, the method for actualizing the reality that has been introduced. So there he says it. That reality, of course, is nothing other than the unity of Dhammadhatu and primordial consciousness. That's reality. And actualizing, it means sustaining it, going deeper, really letting it saturate your mind stream. The Tantra of the blazing clear expanse of the Dakinis states, All adventitious arising of ideation is the display of awareness. And awareness here, you know the context now. Pristine awareness. Right. Is a display of awareness so there is no need to block it. This is an expression of Buddha mind. Why would you tell the Buddha to shut up? Because that's what it would be. Buddha wants to talk to you saying, I'm busy, I'm practicing. <laughs> Don't do that. It's very rude. So there's no need to block it. While conceptualization arises, non-conceptuality grows. Do you get it? While conceptualization arises, non-conceptuality grows. You're deepening. You're acquiring confidence in the non-conceptual stillness of your own rikpa. And that's enhanced, empowered, supported, nurtured by the conceptualization that's coming up. Relative to the activity, your stillness goes deeper. It enhances the stillness. 
The Dharmakaya transcends the mind. The Sambhogakaya transcends cognition. And that is to say, the luminous, empty clarity of cognition. The, in in the, the brackets there, that's directly from Kamajame. It comes in the footnote. So when it says transcends cognition, what does that mean? Sambhogakaya transcends the luminous, empty clarity of cognition. It's transcending the luminosity of your own mind. Because of the luminosity of pristine awareness. Right? Clear. Yeah? And the Nirmanakaya is free of grasping. What does that mean? The Nirmanakaya is without individual <coughs> grasping onto this. Even in the substrate consciousness, there's subtle grasping. Right? You know that. This it doesn't have that. When you're resting a rikpa, by definition, if, if grasping is there, you don't have the view. Well, here, in this context, you don't have the view of, Dzog, of Dzogchen, you don't have the view of pristine awareness, if you're still entangled in grasping. Yeah, so simple. While suffering arises, oh, you can see, there's only one way to read this. While suffering arises in the mind, you're enjoying the horror flick. You're enjoying, it's a flick, it's... It's a flick. It's, it's a movie. People see horrible movies with blood and guts all over the time. They really enjoy it. They pay $15 for two hours to watch disgusting things on a screen. And entertainment, right? Well, bliss increases. You see it from this perspective. It's just enhancing the, the awareness of the luminosity, the creative displays of your own pristine awareness. Pristine awareness is the very womb of innate bliss. Hmm. The greater the mental afflictions, the mightier the primordial consciousness. Of course, from that perspective, right? Because these so-called mental afflictions are arising as this fireworks display, this psychedelic display of primordial consciousness of the absolute space of phenomena. Oh, here comes primordial consciousness mirror-like. Oh, here comes primordial consciousness discernment. It's an extravaganza display of refracted light of pristine awareness. What could be better? And from outside, people would say, oh, mental afflictions. From another perspective, yeah, it is. Mental affliction. Not from this perspective. The greater the mental afflictions, the mightier the primordial consciousness. The larger the pile of wood, the greater the fire blazes. The larger the mass of ice, the more the river rises. The denser the mass of clouds, the stronger the torrent descends. This is really where mental afflictions are rising as aids. Early you try to make it happen. You try this, you try that, you try that. You know, putting a happy face. Here's the lemons, here's the lemonade, here's the cloud, here's the silver white. You're trying to make it happen. Here it's happening spontaneously. Rest as the knots of the snake suddenly release. Rest as if you are casting off a human corpse. Human corpse, by the way, is your mind. Your sentient being mind. Cast it off, right? Rest as if you were discarding a foul odor. As if you just farted and walked away. <laughs> It, if it is restrained, this will be a cause of its dispersing again. If it is rejected, this will be the cause of its returning again. If you clamp down on it, this will be a cause of its rebounding. If you subdue it, this will be a cause of its getting tough again. If you burn it, this will be a cause of its icing over. Stop blocking and affirming. 
and rest in equality. There it is. Boy, that was pithy. Don't block it and don't embrace it. Don't terminate it. Don't follow after it. Let it be. Rest in equality. The equality of stillness, whether it's stillness or motion, don't care. Equality. It's nasty thoughts and lovely thoughts, equality. Virtuous thoughts, unvirtuous, pleasant, unpleasant, coarse and subtle, equality. And you can do that because you're viewing it from Rigpa. If you're not, it's difficult. At least you can maybe try to view it from substrate consciousness. Hmm. Okay, that's it for today. Let's do a little bit of background. It's been waiting. Snappy, snappy. Oh, yeah. This is important stuff we're about to go to. Okay, so here's a brief quote from my book, just because it's easier and it says it in a straightforward way. So, oral transmission of my book. In the scientific worldview, the worldview, the universe, this is our world, so we, see, we need to bring it on the table where we can all see it, because there's nothing odd here. In the scientific worldview, <laughs> we'll view that as an, a help to our, we'll try anyway. <laughs> In the scientific worldview, the universe began with the emergence of lifeless, unconscious configurations of mass energy over the course of billions of years. This gave rise to living organisms, which gradually evolved into conscious sentient beings. While many, f while many fundamental questions remain considering the concerning the origins of life and consciousness, all that's true, scientists take a matter-of-the-gaps approach. That is, if in doubt, it's got to be material. So, you know, like 95% of the universe isn't known, we got it covered. Dark matter, dark energy, it's still physical. It's LaSalle all over again, right? It's matter of the gaps. If in doubt, well, don't worry, we got, we got it covered, it's physical. We don't understand consciousness, we got it covered, it's physical. We under, don't understand mind, we got it covered, brain activity. They don't know anything about it, frankly, in terms of the actual nature of mental events or consciousness, they don't have a clue. They don't have a clue after 135 years, but they still got it covered exactly in the same way that LaSalle took most of Northwestern United States. Just because he says so. And other people, yapping like dogs, agree. Now, an interesting point here is there were, in fact, hundreds of thousands of people in that area living there for many, many centuries. And he just said, you belong to us. You know who the natives are when it comes to the mind? Lama Chanjup. Dingo Kensa Rinpoche, Tuji Rinpoche. They're the natives. I don't mean to pick on Lama Chanju in particular, but you're the culture you represent of Nepal, of Tibet. People who have, for a thousand years, have been exploring, cultivating crops, living in, and profoundly understanding the nature of mind. Not the farmers and so forth, but no. With 6,000 monasteries for 6 million people, that's a lot of people who are dwelling in the nature of mind, exploring it, knowing it, having charted it, and knowing it inside and out. Right? Really. They're the natives. And the modern science comes in and says, 
you people don't count at all. You, you don't have a viewpoint. We're not going to ask you about your experiences because, you know, you don't know anything. And by the way, whatever you think you know about, we own it. But we'd be happy to study your brains and your behavior. Would like to come from interview and we'll, we'll learn about mind, which of course you don't know anything about, but we'll tell you this is the worst form of imperialism I've seen in human history. Because native, those native people are still alive. They're living in Tibet, in Nepal, in Sikkim, in Bhutan, in Ladakh. The imperialism is really astonishing. That's what I'm talking about. It's a matter of the gaps. If in doubt, we'll just say it's matter. If in doubt, just say it belongs to France. Scientists take a matter-of-the-gaps approach, assuming that any future discoveries will necessarily take place within their familiar materialistic framework. They have a, they have a mantra, give us more time. That's what they all say. Oh, and by the way, not just time, uh, money. <laughs> money. We'll tell you who you are, the nature of human existence, how you got here, what your possibilities are. We'll t wait, uh, more money. More money, please. And Obama says, you bet you, $100 million a year, will that do? That's good for starters. Thank you. That's what's happening right now. That's today's news. Anything else is unthinkable. That's pretty much it. I mean, really, look at the media. That's pretty much it. Anything else is unthinkable, and if there's evidence, we don't want to see it, and we'll pretend as if it's not there. And they're doing very, very well at that. The, the, the gag order is extremely effective. I do not know one science writer for any major media that on even one occasion has seriously challenged materialism. And I know some of them personally. They don't dare. The general assumption seems to be that it's simply a coincidence that the evolution of the cosmos has followed the exact se same sequence as did the evolution of modern science six, since the 16th century. Galileo could have turned inwards. He could have been a biologist. He could have been a William James, but he wasn't. He was a physicist, and he was looking as far away as possible. Because back then, the, the soul was considered to be the den of iniquity, not a good place to hang out. You might be burned as a witch. So it just turned out that the first branch of science that really blossomed was physics. That's just what happened. Galileo, Kepler, Newton. And then it turned out that the second big revolution was, of course, Darwin. But of course, he's secular. So where is Darwin going to think life emerges from since he rejected the notion of God? Got only one choice. No, he doesn't have any choice at all. He's going to assume that life emerges from what scientists, from his church, what scientists know about. He has no choice but to assume that life emerges from inorganic matter. No other option is thinkable. That's 1859. We go to 1875 when the cognitive sciences finally come and start to become an empirical science. Now materialism is deeply entrenched in all major Western universities. And so now people like William James and so forth are trying to study the mind. But of course he was voted out. We have a materialist coming in, 1910. And now they say they, say they want to study the mind, but in fact they don't. They want to study things they can measure physically. So what do they say about the mind? The mind, of course, occurs from complex configurations of what we do know about, and that's biology. There was no choice involved because of accidents of history. Life must emerge from the inorganic because we knew about physics before we knew about biology. Consciousness must emerge from biology because we knew one heck of a lot more about biology before we even started the scientific study of the mind. 
it was inevitable. Not because God said so or nature said so. That's how the cookie crumbled. And of course, all of the scientists were Christians until the mid-19th century. So there is a parallel there. That nowadays, when we think about 13.8 billion years, lo and behold, it started with physics. Then lo and behold, about 10 billion years later, life emerged from the physical. Then lo and behold, sometime after that, consciousness emerged from biology. Is that merely a coincidence that our view of the en entire evolution of the universe over the last 13.8 billion, 13 billion years mirrors exactly the evolution of Western science over the last 400 years? Is that merely a coincidence? I'm salivating here. <laughs> Was it a logical necessity that the first great discoveries within the natural sciences took place in physics and were followed by discoveries in the life sciences? Or do members of the church scientific believe that it was the hand of nature that caused the first pioneers of modern science to be physicists and caused them to be followed by biologists and finally by psychologists? The materialist belief that the entire universe as it exists independently of the human mind consists solely of physical entities entails a wild leap of anthropocentric faith. So these materialists that say, we have no faith, we have no faith, that is, to quote Gyatso Rinpoche, bullshit! <laughs> Why would anybody believe that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that the universe as it exists independently of your mind consists only of physical entities, of course, as we conceive of them, because we define the physical. This is fabulous! It's like megalomania of anthropo anthropocentrism cast upon the entire universe. They are avowing that reality as it exists independently of human concepts fits neatly within the human conceptual construct of physical as we define it in the 21st century. Wasn't that accommodating of the universe? <laughs> that the entire universe fits into our 21st century def definition of the physical which isn't the same as the 20th century, that's not the same as the 19th century, that's not the same as the 17th century, the universe is so accommodating that the universe with 100 billion galaxies fits neatly into a 21st century human notion of the category of the physical. Anybody who believes that, oh boy, we say in America, there's a bridge right in New York City that I got for sale for you. It's called the Brooklyn Bridge and I'll sell it to you. You know, it's a, it's a cliche, it's a joke in America. If you're really a very silly, naive person who doesn't know anything, and you come, there's the Brooklyn Bridge, I got it for sale, I got it cheap. You want to buy the Brooklyn Bridge? Just write me a check, it's yours. You know, but you'd have to be incredibly stupid to believe that. This is an expression of blind faith in something that can never be verified or even put to the test of experience. How do you verify or put to the test of experience that there no exists nothing in the entire universe outside of the conceptual construct of the physical as defined in the 21st century? How exactly do you discover that? Physically. <laughs> if the term metaphysical denotes transcendent or a reality beyond what is perceptible to the senses, then the physical world as it exists independent of all systems of measurement is metaphysical and therefore supernatural. And that is the entire physical world as conceived by, by, by materialists is supernatural. It's hilarious, really. If it 
if it were just a big joke, then we could just laugh. But when we see the effects of materialism on human civilization on the planet, the laughter dies down real quickly. And sometimes some of you have seen me display some rather strong ferocity against this. I'm not angry at people. And you can say I'm not really angry now at all. I'm not angry at all. But this is really toxic. This is not just a joke. This is a really toxic, bad joke. It's destroying the environment. Oh, the repercussions I watch every single day. And you either laugh or you can weep. But if you're looking with equanimity, you don't get it. Okay, let's do just a little bit more. Because there's light at the end of this tunnel. This is 19th century physics, which died in the 19th century. It died in 1900 with Max Planck, quantum mechanics, died in 1905, relativity theory, died again in 1915, general relativity theory, died again in the 1990s or so with quantum cosmology. It's been dead and buried four or five times, and it still dominates the media, dominates the cognitive sciences almost without question. So here, the gist of John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, and Thomas Hertog's theory, quantum cosmology, is that there is absolutely no... So, but the point here is, shall I say it now or later? I have to drop this shoe. Okay, I will say it now. You remember good old Ludwig Feuerbach? You remember him? Ludwig Feuerbach, you remember him? How he said back in the ni in 19th century, 1940 or so, that the whole notion of God was basically just our notion of the ideal stern Jewish father or Prussian father, whatever, projected large cosmically, and there he is, big daddy, but nothing other than projection of the human mind and having no existence whatsoever apart from that projection of our idealized notion of a really stern but basically loving father. And he blew it apart and Trotsky and Marx and Thomas Huxley just lapped that up. They thought that was a really good way to kill God, you know, just say fantasy. Well, I wanted to return the favor. As Ludwig dispensed with God from his perspective, um, I want to say, materialist, uh, I had like, I'd like to make a comment. Your whole view of the entire universe for the last 13.8 billion years, uh, that has no existence out there at all. It's just a projection of the last 400 years of the development of science. But nice try. But it's all a fantasy. It's just a projection that has no existence whatsoever independent of that particular set of little measurements and thoughts you've had for the last 400 years. It's your history projected on the universe, which then you reify and tell us it's the only truth. Gosh, who else has ever done that? Sa. I published this a couple of years ago. It didn't make any waves. It was like throwing a pebble into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Ooh. I was a little bit disappointed, but I've gotten over it. But this is not just out of left field. This is actually what I just said completely in accordance with quantum cosmology. Here it comes, and then we'll call it a night. The gist of John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, and Thomas Hertog's theory is that there is no absolutely objective history of the universe as it exists independently of all systems of measurement and conceptual modes of inquiry. Now, please don't misinterpret that. They're not saying, and I'm not saying, that there is no universe independent of our, of our measurements, our questions, our theories. 
Because just like one can be an idiot solipsist, thinking you're the only person in the universe, which is completely stupid, also to think there's no universe apart from what we human beings on planet Earth do, that's equally silly. That's what, terrestrial or what, what we call it, geo, geocentrism? I mean, it's, you know, silly. Of course! To think that we're the only, I mean, that's just one species, for heaven's sakes. What would the chipmunks say? I think they'd really give us a lot of chatter. You know, we have our chipmunkocentric universe. What do you human beings think you're so special for? Right? Any sentient being has his own mandala. Right? But I didn't say human. Their theory is that there is no absolutely objective history of the universe as it exists independently of all systems of measurement. That includes pretas and hell beings and chipmunks and devas and so forth and conceptual modes of inquiry, making sense of appearances. Rather, there are many possible histories. This is straight quantum cosmology. <coughs> Rather, there are many possible histories, among which scientists select one or more based on their specific methods of inquiry. If we apply this insight, now here I say it, if we apply this insight from quantum cosmology, from contemporary physics, we are led to a remarkable conclusion similar to Ludwig Feuerbach's projection view of Christian doctrine. In essence, quantum cosmology can be interpreted to imply that the current scientific materialistic view of the origins and evolution of the universe is a projection of the origins and evolution of modern science over the past 400 years and has no existence apart from that. It's a great story of one civilization for 400 years projected on the entire universe. It points to a fault. This may be called the true or anthropocentric essence of scientific materialism. I took Feuerbach's wording and just mod tweaked it. This may be called, okay, it points to a false or materialistic essence of scientific materialism, namely the view of nature as we experience it and conceive of it as having an existence separate from and independent of human humanity. In other words, a cosmic magnification of arrogance. We alienate ourselves when we project human history onto the physical universe, and the very act of attributing human qualities to the brain alone necessarily withdraws these same qualities from the human species. In other words, we eviscerate ourselves through the same process of a total objectification of human existence into matter. We eviscerate ourselves. We alienate ourselves from the entire universe, and then we're told it's science that did it, which is the biggest fraud in the history of science. Materialists unconsciously project their desire for meaning and immortality onto the universe, giving the name nature to what they themselves have projected. History repeats itself from one church to another. You just got the oral transmission of my text. <laughs> I wanted to give it so somebody would hear it, because <laughs> there was not one Buddhist journal that reviewed the book, and there was not one scientific journal that gave it even close to a fair evaluation. So basically disappeared. So now 300 people have heard it. That's a step in the right direction, as far as I'm concerned. Tomorrow we're going to do something fun, in case you didn't think that was fun. <laughs> Tomorrow we will. Ever heard of Mount Meru? Ever heard of four continents? Ever thought that's pure fantasy because we know what the universe looked like and it's not like that? Ever heard of religious people trying to take whatever theory their theory is and trying to bend it and squish it and contort it so it's, it accords with the scientific view? 
Ever heard, ever happened? I remember once I had the, one of the hardest times of my life. It really was hard. Where I was translating, I think I'll keep the Lama in, uh, anonymous. He's a very fine Lama. That's all I'll say. Very fine Lama. And very traditional and did, had never studied science. But he knew, but he'd, you know, he'd seen photos of the earth from, you know, from our satellites and so forth. He knew he'd flown in airplanes. So he know, you know, you know, it's, it's round. There's Europe, there's India. He knew, I mean, you know, he knew. And yet this is, this is, this Lama was deep and extremely erudite, spent a lot of time in meditation. He's teaching in the West and he's trying to make Mount Meru and the four continents intelligible to Westerners who, when we think of Earth, we think of something round that you can see from a plant, from a, you know, from a satellite and with those continents that we're so familiar with. And I was translating for him. It was in the West. And he said, well, Okay, and, and each of the four continents has a certain shape, right? So he took that template of the shape of the four continents with Mount Muru in the center, and then he tried to superimpose the western continent on Europe. And I had to translate for him. And then he said the northern continent, well, maybe that's kind of... He was trying to bring the two maps together, and I found it excruciatingly hilarious. It was painful that this isn't going to work out. And please don't do that. It's not going to work. And I was trans, and I, and really, really one of the hardest time, maybe the hardest time I ever had to translate. I wanted to just start bellowing with laughter. But this is a very fine Lama and doing his best to try to make this intelligible to a Western audience. You know, this is many, many years ago. And I was trying to translate, and I was going, <coughs> it was really embarrassing, because I absolutely meant no disrespect, but this is not going to work out, you know. And finally, he saw what a difficult time I was having, and he said, never mind. <laughs> Tomorrow, I'm going to bring Mount Meru back with a vengeance. And the four continents, I'm going to bring them back. Because if that's not absolutely real, the one we're so familiar with, that we're told is the only way, right? You've got to accommodate that. That's where the sun is, 93 million miles away. There's the moon, 237,000 miles away. Here's the earth, big chunk, 5 billion years old. Here's, you know, we've been told that's the only story. That's the only story. And any religion that isn't compatible with that, sorry, here's the toilet, you can flush now. And that means Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, get in line. Ready? Ready? Mount Maru? You know, we just got flushed down too. Or maybe not. <laughs> Tomorrow, let's take a visit to Mount Maru. See you then. Cheerio.